Really good to see you. And um, I love that graphic that our design team put together for this series because it's just such a great reminder with the, the phases of the moon, such a great visual representation of the faithfulness of God over the course of days and weeks and months and years and decades and centuries, how God is always faithful. Also a great representation about how God holds the universe together. And so that means he can hold our lives together. Uh, I love how it says in Psalm 8, when I look at the moon and the stars that you set in place, who am I? What is man that you remember him? It's just amazing that the God who created galaxies cares for us. A uh, long time ago, back when I was a youth pastor in Kailua, Cindy and I took a group of high school kids down to Tonga to serve on one of the outlying islands there. This island only had about a thousand people living on it. There was only two street lights, no stoplights, only two street lights on the whole island. And so every night we would just go outside and just look up because this island in the middle of the Pacific with no lights, you could look up and just see stars for days. It was amazing. You could see the Milky Way going across the sky. I don't know if you've ever seen the Milky Way, that band of stars going across the sky. It's mind-blowing when you see it. The locals there told us that on their island, you can see 5,000 stars. You can count 5,000 stars just with your naked eye. And so as we were standing there, just immensely engaged with God's creation, it was so amazing to think that God created that, he sustains that, and still he takes an interest in me. He cares for me. He provides for me. He listens to me. Amazing. Joshua, a few thousand years ago, Joshua experienced that in a really powerful way. He prayed this tiny little prayer, just a little prayer for God to make the sun stand still. You know, not much. Just, hey, God, could you just do something about my sore ankle? And oh, yeah, could you make the sun stand still? Could you do that? And guess what? God listened to him. He did exactly what Joshua asked. Look at what it says in Joshua 10. In fact, there has been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord listened. Now, make sure you understand that because listening, it's different from hearing. God hears everything. God's everywhere. He hears everything. He hears all of your words, all of your thoughts, all of your emotions, all of your intentions. He always hears us. But listening is different. Listening means responding. It means acting. It means intervening. So the question I want to explore today is, what does it take for us to be like Joshua? What does it take for God to listen to us and respond to us? That's what we're going to ask today. So if you got your Bible, open to Joshua 9. We're going to start peeling back some layers of the word, and we're going to investigate the things that led up to that day that was like no other where the Lord listened to a man. Because we know there are certain things that lead to God listening to us. We know that from Scripture. It says in 2 Chronicles 7, If my people who will bear my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their evil ways, then I'll listen from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. It says in 1 John 3, We receive whatever we ask from him if we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. There's an if-then equation all through the Bible. 
seems like there's certain things that lead God to listen to us. So let's start digging in Joshua 9, see if we can figure out what those things are. Last week, we saw Israel destroy the city of Ai. They hanged the king on a tree to warn all the other kings around that city. And apparently, from chapter 9, it looks like the other kings got the message. Chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. It says, When all the kings heard about Jericho and Ai... Those who were west of the Jordan in the hill country, in the Judean foothills, and all along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea towards Lebanon, the Hethites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, they formed a unified alliance to fight against Joshua and Israel. Okay, so they've seen what's happening. They're not going to wait around and just let Israel pick them off one by one. They're going to band together and try and take Israel down. So verse 3, when the inhabitants of Gibeon heard what Joshua had done to Jericho and Ai, they acted deceptively. They gathered provisions and took worn-out sacks on their donkeys and old wineskins cracked and mended. They wore old patched sandals on their feet and threadbare clothing on their bodies. Their entire provision of bread was dry and crumbly. They went to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal and said to him and the men of Israel, we've come from a distant land. Please make a treaty with us. What you might not realize is this city, Gibeon, it's about eight miles from Jerusalem. It's right smack dab in the middle of the territory that God has commissioned Israel to conquer. These guys have heard that Israel's coming. They've heard that Israel's destroying every city in their path. And so they've come up with this genius plan. We have some intel folks, a few military folks in our church in the intel world. You gotta respect the intel kind of engagement and, and deception that Gibeon has come up with here. This is almost like an Ocean's Eleven kind of scam they're running here because they know that Israel's showing no mercy to the people of Canaan, and so they want to trick Joshua into believing that they're not from Canaan, trick him into signing a treaty with them. So what did it say? They, they put old sacks on their donkeys. They put old worn-out sandals on their feet. They put old dry bread in their bags. That way, it'll look like they've been walking for weeks, months. We've come from far away, even though they've probably only been walking for a day, maybe two. It's pretty impressive. You gotta respect the hustle here. Verse seven, the men of Israel replied to the Hivites, perhaps you live among us. Oh, they're already suspecting something. How can we, how can we make a treaty with you? Their antennas are up. They said to Joshua, we are your servants. Joshua asked them, who are you? Where do you come from? They replied to him, your servants have come from a faraway land because of the reputation of the Lord your God, for we've heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. I know how much of that they actually believe and how much of it is part of the scam, but Joshua believes them. Joshua believes them because he hasn't talked to God about it. Skip down to verse 14. It says, the men of Israel took some of their provisions but did not seek the Lord's decision. They're not even gonna ask God about this. <clears throat> so Joshua established peace with them and made a treaty to let them live and the leaders of the community swore an oath to them. And guys, if I'm honest, I'd probably do the same thing if I was in Joshua's shoes. I mean, how can you not have pity on these poor people with their worn out sandals, with their old moldy bread? 
How can you not have compassion on them? Joshua's acting out of compassion. The problem is he's not communicating with God. It says he did not seek the Lord's decision. Even though at this point in the story, God is speaking directly to him. It's almost like Joshua's got a walkie-talkie. He can just talk to God anytime, and he's not taking advantage of that. He's not doing that. He could ask God for guidance at any time and expect a quick answer, but he's not. He's done this whole investigation all on his own. He knows these people might be pulling a fast one, so he's asked them a few questions. It's the problem that, that he's forgotten to ask God any questions. So how often do you do that? How often do you go to Google before you go to God? How often does that happen? How often do you go to YouTube and look up a video on how to solve a kid who won't stop crying before you go to God and ask him to do something about the kid who won't stop crying? We think we're all on our own. We think we gotta come up with all the answers and figure it all out for ourselves. And you, you know what the Bible calls that? Ungodliness. Ungodliness. That's different from unrighteousness. Unrighteousness means rebelling against God. Ungodliness means living like God doesn't exist. Assuming that reality is what we can see with our eyes and feel with our senses and understand with our minds. Living like an atheist, that's ungodliness. And that's exactly what Joshua is doing here. He's, he's become BFFs with the Gibeonites. He, he's made a covenant with them. And that is when the trap gets sprung. Look at verse 16. It says, three days after making the treaty with them, they heard that the Gibeonites were their neighbors living among them. Joshua's like, no, seriously? He just got punked. He just feels like a fool. He got fooled into making a covenant with a city that he has been commissioned by God to destroy. And it's all because he fell into ungodliness. And here's the thing. This is the second time that's happened in just a couple of weeks. Just a few weeks before this, he attacked the city of Ai just using his own plans, his own strategy. And he got his okole handed to him, right? We saw that last week. He's fallen into ungodliness twice in a really short amount of time. But then, just a few weeks after this, Joshua's going to go back to God. And God's going to listen to Joshua like he's listened to no man before or since. He's going to make the sun stand still. Joshua's going to keep plugging away. He's not going to let his sins and his mistakes and his failures hold him back from going to God. And family, this is huge right here. You want to know what it takes for God to listen to you? Here's number one, gospel confidence. That's what we're gonna see here. Not sinless perfection, no. Gospel confidence that God's grace covers your imperfection. Now, that kind of confidence, it is not easy to have. Because you know right now, Satan is coming to Joshua. He's coming at Joshua. Like, bro, what did you do? You're a failure. You're a fraud. 
You're useless. I know that's what Satan's doing to Joshua right now because that's what he does to all of us. That's, that's one of his favorite tactics. He'll wait for us to mess up and then he'll be like, whoa, that was bad. Wow, can't believe you did that. How can you live with yourself after that? How can you go to God after that and expect him to receive you? How can you expect God to listen to you? He's not gonna listen to you, so you should probably just stick with me. Satan loves to do that. He's called the accuser. That's his name in the Bible. But the promise of Romans 8 is who can bring any accusation against God's elect? Who? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. Jesus died to take the accusation that you deserve, and he rose from the grave to conquer your sin. He took the accusation for your sin when he died, and he rose to set you free from your sin, and so you can go to God with confidence that he's conquered your sin. That's what gospel confidence is all about. Now, the only thing is, that doesn't mean you're not gonna have to deal with some of the consequences of your sin. Keep going in verse 18. It says, the Israelites did not attack them because the leaders of the community had sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel. And then the whole community grumbled against the leaders. Yeah. They're going, bro, the, the Gibeonites don't deserve to live. They tricked us into a false treaty. So that treaty is null and void. These guys deserve death just like the rest of Canaan. In fact, they deserve double death. They deserve it more than the rest of Canaan. But verse 19, all the, all the leaders answered them, we have sworn an oath to them by the Lord, the God of Israel, and now we cannot touch them. This is how we'll treat them. We'll let them live so that no wrath will fall on us because of the oath we swore to them. Joshua is not going to allow the sins of others to make him go back on his word. He's not going to respond to their sin with more sin of his own. He's going to stick to the oath that he made, especially because he made that oath in the name of the Lord. This was a promise that he made to God, not just to these people. And so there's no way he's going back on that. You want to know what it takes for God to listen to us? I think here's number two. Fear of the Lord. Fear of his disappointment. Fear of his discipline. Because we make all kinds of promises in life. Sometimes we even make them before God and before a crowd of witnesses, but sometimes we're saying something different inside than what we're saying out loud. I promise I'll live up to this as long as it benefits me as long as it's convenient for me. And we do this all the time. Yeah, sure, I'll, I'll go to your party on Friday. Just as long as there's nothing better that comes up between now and then. Oh, absolutely, I'll help you move on Saturday. I just gotta see if there's anything on my calendar. Lord, please let there be something on my calendar. We say many things before God and other people, but lots of times our word only lasts as long as it's convenient. Well, Joshua has shown us something radically different from that. He's gonna stick to his word. 
He knows he's got to live with the consequences of his sin, and so he's going to fear God and live with the Gibeonites and trust God to work it all out. He's going to show mercy to the Gibeonites, even though they deserve double death for what they did. So here's, I think, another thing. What does, what does it take for God to listen to us? Number three, forgiveness. Forgiving others. Because we know from all of Scripture that if we can't forgive other people, God won't listen to us. That's what it says over and over in the Bible. Remember what Jesus said when he taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. He said in Matthew 5, if you're offering your gift on the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. We can't go to God until we've reconciled, until we've forgiven our brother and sister. The problem is we like to go to God and just pretend like everything's okay with our brother. Just pretend. Kind of like this picture, this family picture from, I don't know, I think it was like seven or eight years ago. There's my kids with grandpa. Doesn't everybody just look smiley, happy, nice? When Cindy took this picture and then she showed it to me, I'll be, oh, that's a, that's a great photo. Everybody's all lovey. But thank God for live photos because then Cindy showed me the live photo of what was happening around this picture. <laughs> yeah, that's what was actually happening in that photo. One sister who could not stand her brother that day, and so she couldn't even stand for him to be touching her shoulder that day. That's what was happening around that nice, happy, smiley photo right there. And that's how we go to God so many times, pretending like things are all shiny and happy with our brother when we are harboring bitterness towards our brother. Well, Joshua's not playing that game. He's not. He forgives Gibeon. And God's going to use that forgiveness for his purposes. Gibeon is going to live with Israel, inside of Israel, for hundreds of years, and they're going to worship God alongside the Israelites. Only problem is the rest of the Canaanites don't want to see that. They don't like the fact that Gibeon has allied with the Israelites. They don't want Gibeon on the side of their enemies. So skip to chapter 10, and look at what it says in verse 5. Chapter 10, verse 5 says, The five Amorite kings, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon, joined forces, advanced with all their armies, besieged Gibeon. Yeah, the enemy of my enemy is my friend or something like that. They fought against it. And then the men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua in the camp at Gilgal, Don't give up on your servants. Come quickly and save us. Help us for all the Amorite kings living in the hill country have joined forces against us. They made this treaty, so Joshua and all his troops, including all of his best soldiers, came from Gilgal, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for I've handed them over to you. Not one of them will be able to stand against you. Same thing he told Joshua back in chapter one. God has to repeat his promises over and over because he knows that we tend to forget his promises. Verse nine, so Joshua caught them by surprise. After marching all night from Gilgal, the Lord threw them into confusion before Israel. He defeated them in a great slaughter at Gibeon, chased them through the ascent of Beth Haran, struck them down as far as Azekah and Makedah, 
And as they fled before Israel, the Lord threw large hailstones on them from the sky along the descent of Beth Haran all the way to Azekah, and they died. Most of them died from the hail. Sorry, more of them died from the hail than the Israelites killed with the sword. So Joshua is fighting hard, but God is fighting even harder. And Joshua recognizes that, that there's an interplay between his role and God's role. What does it take for God to listen to us? Here's number four, proactive dependence. Proactive dependence. Maybe that sounds like an oxymoron to you, like a contradiction in terms. I mean, like, if God is sovereign, why can't we just let him do everything? Look at what's happening here. First, he throws the Amorite army into a panic. Then he starts throwing giant hailstones down from heaven. He kills more of the enemy than the Israelites do. He's got everything under control. So if God's gonna accomplish his plan, why can't we just stay home and watch YouTube all day, right? Why can't we just do that? Here's why. Because God's sovereign plan includes our proactive efforts. God's sovereign plan includes our proactive efforts. If you know that God's in control of everything, that shouldn't immobilize you. That should energize you. Energize you to serve him. There's so many different opportunities to serve God. And so knowing that God's in control shouldn't make you go to sleep. It should get you amped up and ready to charge, ready to go, man. It should push you out of bed in the morning and make you go, man, I, I just cannot wait to see what God is gonna do for me and what he's gonna do through me. And then work as hard as you can all day long to see that happen. Family, you gotta work like it all depends on you and pray like it all depends on God. That's how we live. And that's what Joshua's doing here. He is working hard and he is praying hard. And here's where we get to that audacious request. Verse 12. On the day the Lord gave the Amorites over to the Israelites, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of Israel. Sun, stand still over Gibeon and moon over the valley of Ajalon. And look at this, the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. Incredible. What does it take to be heard by God? Number five, bold requests. Bold requests. Specific requests. Like the sun to stand still. That's pretty specific. Here's the thing. I don't think God likes to answer vague prayers. I don't think so. When we pray vague prayers, how do we even know if God answered them? Lord, bless the people in Israel. Bless the people in Palestine. How, how are we gonna know if he answered that? God loves to answer big, specific, audacious, bold prayers, and that's so that you'll know if he answers them. 
That's so you'll praise him when he answers them. That's so you'll lead other people to join you in praising him when he answers them. Man, I gotta tell you what God did for me. Joshua is asking for the sun to stand still. Now, I know all of you hard science majors, you're thinking about, well, does that mean that God caused the rotation of the earth to stop? Because we know it's not the sun moving, it's the earth moving. And if the rotation of the earth stopped, we'd all be flung into outer space through entripetal force. I was a political science major, so I'm using the wrong terms here. I don't even know all of the, the scientific theories that are going on in your head. I don't know, maybe he did. But there's also another translation that's possible for this Hebrew word to stand still. It could also be translated, be silent. For the sun to stop shining, not keep shining. Which could make some sense. I mean, Joshua marched all night, he made a surprise attack, and so he could be praying for God to allow that momentum to continue in darkness. So he can... Keep fighting before the enemy gets a chance to regroup. He could be praying for a solar eclipse here. That's a possible interpretation here. And that's still a pretty bold prayer. I mean, an eclipse happens in any given place in the world maybe once a century, maybe. And Joshua's asking it for, for it to happen right here, right now. Whichever way we want to interpret this. He's asking for something big and bold and audacious. So what does that say about our small, little, vague, meaningless prayers? What if you got invited to the White House? I don't care what side you're on, which president you like. Pretend it's a president you like, okay? You get invited to the White House. You get two minutes with the president to present any request you want. He's the most powerful man in the world. Nobody can do, uh, dispute that. And you get two minutes to present any request before the most powerful man in the world. What are you gonna ask for? Well, Mr. President, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but they've been putting these big speed bumps all over Oahu. It's kind of messing with my suspension. I'm not sure if you can do anything about that. Is that what you would ask for? Is that what you would waste your time on? Is that the best request you could come up with? So why are those the kind of prayers that we pray? Man, you have an audience with the most high and he has given you the chance to ask for anything in the world. Psalm 91, when you call to me, I'll answer you in anything. Family, why are you wasting your time on small, little, vague, meaningless prayers? It's time to start asking for big things. Ask for God to completely heal you of your anger, your lust, your jealousy. Ask for God to use you to save your one more who seems so far from God. Ask for God to use our church to plant a hundred more churches across Hawaii Nei and reach 1% of the population in Hawaii. It's time to ask for big things, family. Because God responds to big prayers. He loves to.
says in verse 13, isn't this written in the book of Jashar? The sun stopped in the middle of the sky, delayed its setting almost a full day. There's been no day like it before or since when the Lord listened to a man because the Lord fought for Israel. The Lord fought. And that is the story of this whole book, how the Lord keeps fighting for Israel. That's the rest of chapter 10. That's the beginning of chapter 11, that the Lord keeps fighting even when they come across these folks in the north of Canaan who have horses and chariots. The Israelites, they're just running around with swords. That's like throwing rocks at guys with machine guns. So look at what it says in chapter 11, verse four. These kings went out with all their armies, a multitude as numerous as the sand on the seashore, along with a vast number of horses and chariots, and all these kings joined forces. They came and camped together at the waters of Merom to attack Israel. This looks like a hopeless battle now, but God's still fighting for them. Verse six, the Lord said to Joshua, do not be afraid of them, for at this time tomorrow, I'll cause all of them to be killed before Israel. You are to hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. So Joshua and all his troops surprised them at the waters of Merom and attacked them. God's fighting for Israel, and so Israel fights for God. God's sovereignty has a place for our responsibility. Verse eight, the Lord handed them over to Israel. And they struck them down, pursuing them as far as greater Sidon and Misrephoth, Mayim, and to the east as far as the valley of Mizpeh. They struck them down, leaving no survivors. Joshua treated them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots. You know what it means to hamstring a horse? It means to cut the Achilles tendon. It makes them completely useless for battle. Which makes absolutely no sense. I mean, Joshua is destroying weapons that he could use. Horses and chariots, weapons he doesn't have. But Joshua knows that it's easy to trust in technology. Technology like horses and chariots more than we trust in God. David said in Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And the Hebrew word for trust is the word halal. Halal. You said that word this morning when we sang hallelujah. Same word. That word means to put your confidence in, to lean on, to boast in. You can lean on the safety and security that you've built around yourself, horses and chariots, a stable job, a nice comfortable balance in your bank account, copacetic relationships. You can trust in those things. You can lean on those things, but not for long. They never last. Horses and chariots, they can sway the direction of a skirmish but only God makes the sun stand still. So here's the question I want to leave you with. Why are you still praying for horses and chariots? Why are you still praying for horses and chariots? In whatever battles you're facing, family, 
It's time for us to pray for God to make the sun stand still and then expect him to listen. Let's pray together right now. Father, forgive us, forgive me for such vague, small, meaningless prayers as I pray way too often. Help us to come to you with gospel confidence, knowing that we don't deserve your love, we don't deserve your acceptance, we don't deserve for you to listen to us, but because of Jesus, you've forgiven us, redeemed us, adopted us, and now we are the kids who get to come into the throne room of the king. We are the kids who get to jump up and wake the king up at 3 a.m. in the morning. Not even his servants get to do that, but his kids do. Help us to come to you with confidence and boldness and big, audacious prayers for our lives, for our marriages, for our families, for our church, for our islands. And expect you to listen because we know that our prayers are coming to you through the power of the Holy Spirit and the advocacy and grace of your son, Jesus. Help us to be bold this week. In Jesus' name, amen.